Welcome back to the podcast of JCMS, Journal Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. I'm Kirk Barber, the editor of the journal. On today's episode, I interview Dr. Melinda Gooderham of Peterborough, Ontario, and Dr. Chio Hung of Surrey, BC, the lead co-authors of a supplement that we published in the journal in November 2018. The supplement is called The Approach to the Assessment and Management of Adult Patients with Atopic Dermatitis, a consensus document. The supplement was sponsored, as is this podcast, by Sanofi Genzyme, but they had no input into the content of either and allowed us full freedom to discuss whatever we wished. The consensus document is just that, and I think today you're going to hear um, the consensus of a group of experts across the country. So without further ado, Melinda, perhaps you can give me some sense of what is it that drove you to to create this document? Well, we really wanted to um, get a group together to come up with some practical guidelines because we kind of realized that uh, even the diagnosis um, of atopic dermatitis was all over the map. And we wanted to hear from our colleagues on, you know, what would be the best way to define moderate to severe disease, because, you know, you could have somebody with widespread disease or a patient with small body surface area, but um, a significant impact on their quality of life. And we realized how, how do you define it as moderate to severe? So Chio, how'd you go about this? You had a bunch of people in the room and Chit chat, or what was the what was the format of the discussion? Well, Kirk, uh, we were able to assemble a group of uh, people from Canada, both dermatologists and allergists, that have a significant amount of clinical experience treating patients with uh, atopic dermatitis, uh, and uh, we were able to get them in a room together and uh, discussed uh, pathophysiology discussed scoring systems, uh, discussed uh, therapy, and then uh, once these were uh, reviewed, we were able to come up uh, with a series of statements uh, that were then voted upon uh, by the group in a Delphi uh, type of consensus. Uh. So it came up with 11 statements. This literature review was really quite big. I mean, I looked at, you came down, I looked at the, the diagram and how, how you came to this, and you reviewed 1,744 documents that in PubMed up to February 2018. So up-to-date, practical. So what do you think, Chio, is the, in the practical side of this, um, did, did you discover anything new from this literature review? Well, I think we did. I think uh, we recognized that uh, in the management of atopic dermatitis, that uh, dermatologists are, and allergists are probably quite a bit behind maybe some other disease states that we uh, treat as well, like psoriasis. So there's a, a potentially a lot of uh, room for improvement. Um, when you get the group of uh, people that have a lot of clinical experience uh, in the room, there's certainly um, some variability uh, from one practitioner to another. And even uh, regionally, we saw some uh, differences in terms of uh, how people define uh, moderate to severe disease and how people treat moderate to severe disease. But uh, part of the goal of this 
project was to come up with something that's practical that uh, dermatologists uh, across the country and uh, around the world uh, can use as a guide to help them provide their patients with the best care when they're treating people with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. So how do you define it, moderate to severe atopic dermatitis? Um, well, I, maybe I'll let Melinda answer that because uh, she was the uh, uh, lead author on that section on defining and, and scoring systems. Yeah, perfect. Well, I, what I was going to say, uh, getting back to that last question, was not only did we learn uh, something from that literature review, but I think we, going through the exercise, we actually modified what we had originally thought we would go with in the definition and in, in the the uh, ass assessments that we would recommend and the PROs or the uh, patient reported outcomes that we would recommend. And it, and it evolved through the whole process of doing the lit review and meeting with our colleagues. And I think the final product was a little bit different than what we had anticipated from the beginning. But we, as a group, decided with moderate to severe disease, we had to have some metrics for um, the payers to to approve medications and to all be on the same page. So we recommended for um, ease of use in clinic that the uh, Physician Global Assessment, or PGA, along with um, body surface area, or BSA, would be most practical to do in the clinic. So by definition, moderate to severe would be a PGA score of three or higher and a BSA of 10 or higher. And then from a patient reported outcome, uh, we recommended the DLQI simply because dermatologists in Canada use this on a regular basis in other disease states. But we didn't want to miss the important features of atopic dermatitis, which is um, pruritus and sleep loss. So we recommend uh, either a poem, which captures the sleep loss and pruritus, or um, simply a pruritus NRS uh, scale with a score of four or higher. So all pretty simple things to do in the office. I mean, someone should be able to take this and assess a patient in minutes. Yeah, um, well, that's really. what we were worried about if we had too many complicated assessments yeah, that a, patients wouldn't get what they needed to be treated, really, if it yeah, was too and, complicated. And I'm, I'm, I'm really um, um, thankful that you put in sleep loss. I mean, I, I think I, whenever I see patients um, back, the very first question I ask is, how's your sleep been? And you know you've had mm -hmm. success if, if the sleep's and been they, improved. And it's the big uh, smile on their face. When you ask them, how's your sleep? And yes. if they've been sleeping, this big smile comes and you know that, that that's special for yeah. them. Yeah. And, and, and Chio, I know you had the section on comorbidities. And, and is that become an important thing for us to assess in the clinic as well? Um, we did look at the different comorbidities that have been published and reported, and there are many. Um, and there's certainly certain comorbidities that are related to the atopic diathesis, uh, such as asthma, uh, such as food allergies, such as seasonal allergies that are quite common. And I think most of the practitioners are aware of these things. And um, many of the people would screen for them beforehand, and I think that there was agreement that we should at least take some historical questions uh, regarding some of the other atopic comorbidities. Um, but I think what was most surprising to 
at least some of the participants, was the degree of uh, psychological distress that these patients um, are suffering from, both anxiety and uh, depression. Um, and I think the more of these patients that we are seeing and we are treating in our clinics, um, I think that these uh, issues are uh, becoming more uh, commonly recognized. So as the experts that treat this disease, it's probably important that we are cognizant of not only the atopic comorbidities, but also the psychological comorbidities that come with this uh, disease. So in the assessment story, did, was there, did anything come up that we could use as a quick assessment of depression, or is this a sort of a sense, a sense of gestalt with when you're interviewing people? So we didn't specifically recommend any screening tool in the document. Uh, we recommended a referral uh, in, in necessary cases. But if you're looking for a quick screen in the clinic, the PHQ-2 is uh, probably the most effective. And that uh, asks the patient about the frequency of depressed mood and anhedonia or loss of interest in the things they enjoy. So if you score three or higher, then that should trigger a referral to a mental health specialist. Okay. So um, we've got the patient assessed. We've looked at their comorbidities. Now we're going to start to talk about how we're going to manage them. Eh? I think I think every dermatologist knows the cream story. Did you learn anything new when you reviewed the literature and you had discussions around the table about uh, topical therapy or anything that surprised you that, you, that uh, you'd like to share? I think that... There wasn't a lot new in terms of the usage of topicals. Um, there are some publications that not everybody that was in attendance was aware of, uh, which suggests that early onset use of emollients uh, may help to uh, reduce the likelihood that people that are at risk of developing atopic dermatitis will develop atopic dermatitis. Not everyone uh, at the table was aware of this, the, the data in, in infants because they don't necessarily all treat infants. Um, but apart from that, uh, topical therapy is still, you know, grounded in emollients. So everyone agreed that emollients are very important for people with atopic dermatitis uh, to restore uh, moisture to the skin and to help to repair the epidermal barrier. So I think that was not really contentious issue. And still the first line therapy for many patients with atopic dermatitis remains topical therapy, either topical corticosteroids or uh, calcineurin inhibitors. And at the time that the paper was published in Canada, uh, crisoberol was not yet approved, but uh, I think people would probably slot crisoberol uh, in there uh, as potentially a second line agent after topical steroids and topical calcineurin inhibitors. Was there any fear with the use of the topical calcineurin inhibitors, or has that been put to bed? I know the, the CDA, the Canadian Dermatology Association, has a, a consensus statement that from its pharmacy and therapeutics group that is really quite comforting with regard to the use of this, and I use it in my practice to, to, to quiet the storm that we used, to, we used to have to deal with every time we mentioned it. In the, in the audience or in your group, was there anybody that was still uncomfortable using them? I don't think necessarily that there were people with ongoing, persistent, strong concerns. I think everybody has patients that have read warnings um, 
on the internet and and probably more likely is that when patients go to fill some of these prescriptions for topical calcineurin inhibitors that the pharmacist uh, probably um, brings in some element of concern or doubt in the patient's mind uh, but I think most of the participants were reasonably comfortable using topical calcineurin inhibitors um, a more recently published uh, analysis of of risk suggests that even if there was an increased risk, the number of patients that you'd have to treat um, before you actually saw something like lymphoma would be very high, and so it's it's a it's a very unlikely uh, problem to run into. Melinda, do you have the same problem with pharmacists? Uh, yeah, we we have that issue here in Ontario for sure, yeah. especially with children. If you prescribe the 0.1%, it's you'll always get a phone call with of protopic. It is not something you're concerned you're not concerned about it at all though at point 1%. No, not at all. And in fact in the document uh, in the consensus statement we did suggest that patients be counseled that despite the black box warning there's really um no data to support that there's an increased risk of lymphoma with the hopes that everyone's on the same page in Canada. Tell me the story around antihistamines. Um, we've, we started off using them quite consistently, bedtime story. Now the move is away from them. So Melinda, how do you manage the antihistamine world? I never recommend, I used to always recommend antihistamines, the sedating kind. Um, but I think we know enough now that, uh, sedating antihistamines can affect sleep. And this is a group of patients who really suffer from that. Uh, issues. So I don't recommend uh, sedating antihistamine in my patients. Some patients will come and say that they're taking something over the counter and they feel that it's helping. So I don't uh, tell them to stop if they are deriving some benefit, but I have changed my practice that way to avoid uh, recommending or prescribing sedating antihistamines. And and what about the non-sedating ones? Have you had have you had success with the particularly the new generation? Not an atopic dermatitis, certainly in other conditions yeah. like urticaria, that's my my go-to. Uh, but atopic right. dermatitis, I don't I don't find that it there's a lot of data showing that it works and I and many patients if you do recommend it, they don't find it. It's it's some patients who've started on their own who feel that it's helping. Gio, would that would that echo your sentiment with regard to the antihistamine story? Uh yeah, I I agree that uh, I do not typically prescribe antihistamines for uh, patients with purely atopic dermatitis. Uh, I was never convinced uh, that they worked, so I stopped it quite a long time ago. Um, I I will only prescribe the newer non-sitting antihistamines when patients have overlapping disease states. So obviously people that have atopic dermatitis are more likely to have urticaria. And if they present with urticaria or some urticarial component, then I'll prescribe those patients non-stating antihistamines. But I typically don't use it for uh, quote-unquote pure atopic dermatitis. I, I agree with Melinda that using them uh, probably interferes with uh, getting a good quality night of sleep. Um, and so I just don't use them. And I, I'd like to add, people will say, well, what am I supposed to do about the itch? And then that's when 
I had the discussion about more aggressive therapy to control the disease, because if you can control the disease, then you control the itch and you don't need the antihistamine. Yeah, that's a great segue into treatment now, because so many of our patients, I think, are undertreated. Uh, and so, and if, and with, you know, maybe not so much in the adult population, but if they've grown up under undertreated, in the adult world where, where this consensus document was, they probably don't know that there's treatment out there that uh, can make a, a big difference uh, to them. So we've done the topicals. We talked about antihistamines. Let's move into the you know systemic treatment uh, of this condition. And I'm purposely going to avoid oral antibiotics for the moment um, into targeted specific therapies uh, for methotrexate. Well, well, we'll get there. Okay, so maybe let's, let's talk about methotrexate. Okay, uh, or non-targeted um, therapy, if you if you will, to start. There's uh, some information in our journal uh, from uh, Dr. Sher and his group, and and uh, Dr. Dutz and Dr. Ho in Vancouver about the use of methotrexate in the management of atopic eczema, and it's very favorable work. Has this been your experience as well, Gio? Say, um, start us off. Um, well. We looked at a number of publications looking at uh, oral systemic immunomodulatory therapies, including methotrexate, uh, cyclosporin, azathioprine, mycophenolate. And so there's, there's been, you know, a number of articles published, including the one that you just uh, referenced. And, and one of the, the goals of when we were doing the consensus was to come up with what the group felt would be the most appropriate first-line systemic agent uh, in that kind of group of medications. And we did agree that methotrexate is probably appropriate for many patients that have uh, chronic uh, moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Um, we felt that patients generally fell into one of two general groups, uh, patients who had stable disease, meaning that they had their moderate to severe disease, they have been sort of the same way for weeks to months, they're not having an acute flare, um, and those patients are probably appropriate for methotrexate therapy. And we contrasted that to a group of patients who have moderate to severe widespread disease who have unstable disease. They're having a flare. They used to have very mild disease, and now all of a sudden, in a very short period of time, they're very extensively um, involved. They have very acute disease. It's very weepy. And for those patients, we felt that that's a different phenotype, and those patients are probably more appropriate for cyclosporin. And in the consensus statements, that's sort of how the consensus statement was written. That's a very nice way to uh, sort it out. So you match methotrexate to the more stable disease, cyclosporin to the more unstable disease. Um, Melinda, I've used methotrexate now. Um, is yours, and this patient is stable. Um, how long do I keep them on it? Um, what's been your experience? Are you able to come on and off this drug? Typically for my patients, I, I keep them on it and I try to reduce the dose as low as I can go to, to reduce their exposure. Um, but this is a chronic disease, so I don't uh, typically completely stop the medication unless there's a safety concern. Okay, so um, 
with the methotrexate now, we've got we've sorted out methotrexate cyclosporine. Let's um, let's move into the targeted therapies and 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 look at the, really the only medication that is approved for the management of atopic eczema in our country, and that's dupilumab. So, um, Melinda, could you give us some sense as to your experience with the drug? Yeah, it's been um, really a wonderful addition to. Um, our toolbox for atopic dermatitis. It's, uh, it doesn't have the same toxicities as these other medications that, that we use. And, you know, when we use systemic, um, immunomodulators, there, obviously there's a very high benefit to risk ratio, but the risk is still there. And with dupilumab, the risk is even lower. So you have the the comfort of the safety in a long-term basis for a long-term chronic condition. And, you know, my experience with it has been it, it almost normalizes mm-hmm. skin. It, it, the most amazing thing when it, when it works great, it works and, really and great. And the patients will always, you know, point out how smooth and soft their skin is, which they haven't right. felt in so long. Yeah. Yeah. Gio? What's been? Have you had the same experience? Yes, I yes I agree that uh, dupilumab has been a very helpful addition to the different treatments that we can offer these patients. Uh, I agree that when it works well, it can work uh, very well and can have very dramatic results. Um, and I agree with Melinda that one of the major advantages is the lack of uh, end organ toxicity. Uh, making this really um, a nice treatment for a chronic disease if you don't have to monitor for end organ damage from the therapy that you're using. Yeah, I will uh, put in another plug for the journal and get people to read Melinda's article on the um, conjunctivitis and how to manage it is something that is is uh, one of the uh, issues with this drug. And Melinda um, and her co-author was really good at uh, giving us uh, a method of approach in, in, in managing this. Do you, and Melinda, um, have you got a capsule summary of that uh, article? How have you found how have you found managing the uh, the conjunctivitis issue? Have you had to do it very often? You know, I've, I've had a few patients, and thankfully, I haven't uh, had to stop the medication for any of them. I know I've heard some stories about patients who had to come off dupilumab because of conjunctivitis, but I've been lucky. Uh, we've been able to manage with topical therapy. Now that would be uh, one place where I would use a topical antihistamine, um, or even just moisturizing or lubricating eye drops, um, early on with symptoms. That's the one thing that I learned, uh, treat them early, even some protopic around if they're having any symptoms around the eyes can be very helpful. But I, we wrote that article just because it's, Conjunctivitis isn't something we really talk about, so it was kind of like a primer for the dermatologist to take you back to medical school and and start from the basics. Mm -hmm. So when you're prescribing dupilumab, is there anything we need to do first besides the assessments that we've already spoken about of the disease? I mean, is it it truly a lab-free treatment? Yeah, very simple. Gio, is there anything you do? Yeah, I I think that... um, I think that if a patient that you're seeing uh, comes in and you've done a physical examination and you've done the uh, atopic dermatitis assessments, um, there's no real reason why you need to order uh, any 
blood work on the patient. Um, now, now, having said that, the, the more practical answer is that um, because of reimbursement-related concerns, many of these patients are going to uh, not be able to access dupilumab uh, on the first cut, and they'll have to take some type of systemic immunomodulatory mm -hmm. therapy, like methotrexate and then by default, I'm ordering laboratory investigations and imaging because people are on either methotrexate or cyclosporin or they're taking them back to back. So, Yeah, and, and um, I would suggest that much like we do in psoriasis, a good, chance, a good time to get your uh, assessments done is before you start any therapy. So you can always go back to it and prove um, to payers that, that the drug has worked or, or is needed. All right, so we have dupilumab. It's been it's 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 been a really um, it's been a breakthrough in the management of atopic dermatitis, and it's spurred on a lot of understanding in the basic science world too. So, um, the future, where are we going? Um, dupilumab, like in our psoriasis world, is really the first targeted therapy out there for this condition. What's new? What, what's what's coming down down into into our world in the next five years? Well, I know that the in the pipeline there are other biologic agents um, that target different uh, parts of the Th2 immune pathway. So we're going to see some molecules that uh, target uh, IL-13 exclusively. Um, in, in the development pipeline, uh, the drug that's probably furthest along is uh, trilokinumab, which is an IL-13 inhibitor. Um, there are going to be uh, drugs that target uh, TSLP. There's going to be uh, drugs that target other uh, interleukins. Um, and then there's going to be a whole slew of oral molecules uh, as well that are going to be used or looked at in treating atopic dermatitis. Most of these agents will probably fall under the umbrella of uh, JAK-STAT inhibitors. Um, so there are a number of uh, JAK inhibitors that are either in phase three or going to start phase three very soon. Um, having worked with uh, at least one of these agents in phase two, they, they worked very well. Uh, I know Melinda's worked with a number of these agents in phase two. Um, and I, I know that her experience was quite good with these agents, so it remains to be seen whether uh, JAK inhibitors will perform uh, as well as or better than dupilumab. And, you know, obviously the issue with oral agents is uh, what kind of longevity do they provide in terms of therapy and is the side, side effect profile um, going to be the same as, as uh, the side effect profile for dupilumab. So, Melinda, um, th is there any opportunity for topical therapy in, in, in um, a topical targeted therapy in atopic dermatitis? I mean, I struggle because it's such a widespread phenomenon. It's, it's your entire skin surface is altered and your entire immune system is altered. Um, any sense? Well, I, I think that one of the, the nice things about small molecules that, that Chiho was just talking about, the JAK1 inhibitors, is... Um, that the JAK inhibitors are small and they can be compounded. So there are a couple that have been tested, uh, applied topically to problem areas for patients, and they really do work well, actually, uh, without 
the the concerns of you know chronic topical steroid use so mm-hmm. you know maybe not in that patient with a significant body surface area involvement but for those patients that i mentioned at the very beginning who have a significant disease but in small um smaller body surface areas that's where i think these will play uh, a significant role so perhaps the I'd like to see the future go to where, where you know my grandparents to manage atopic eczema would use oatmeal wrapped in a cheesecloth and dumped in dunked in the bathtub, and I'm thinking well maybe we'll get that with these small molecules and put them in a little cheesecloth and dump <laughs> them in the bathtub and uh, treat people uh, topically uh, rather than exposing them to uh, systemic therapy. Well, listen, thanks very much uh, to the two of you. I really appreciated this. You, I, I will compliment you. This is, this is, a, this is a really great um, uh, document. Uh, I think you got consensus uh, from reading through the, the consensus statements, and I urge all our listeners to, 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 to go to it because it, you, you did accomplish your goal, and that was to create a practical uh, update and guideline to set the assessment and management of atopic dermatitis in adults. So thanks very much for joining me, and I uh, really appreciate the conversation. Thank you very much, Kirk, for inviting us. Yes, thanks, Kirk. We appreciate the opportunity to talk to everybody. This has been a great conversation. I really think they accomplished their goal. And that goal, just to remind you, was to provide us as clinicians with a practical, up-to-date guideline for the management of adult patients with atopic dermatitis. I really think you'd enjoy and get a lot out of actually reading the consensus document, so I urge you to do so and remind you that it was in our November JCMS issue. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And until next time, Be good to each other.